This episode of I Was a Teenage Film Snob is not brought to you by Reading Cinema, but I wish it was. They're great. Give me a call, guys. Welcome to I Was a Teenage Film Snob. I'm James Chalmers, and yes, I was a teenage film snob. Uh, This week's guest is a man who I recorded with a long, long time ago, about 10 years ago now on a show I used to do called Chwoodcast with my friend Tom Woodward. Um, And ever since then, I would say every three months or so, he has uh, sent me a message or given me a call or or like a little message on social media, hey, we should record again. And um, I'm always like, yeah, yeah, we will, we will. And then it just didn't uh, end up happening. Um, and then he never appeared on the show I did with uh, my wife, Tina, or my friend, Nick. We did a show called Pass the Remote, which I've talked about on previous episodes. Um, and it just, the scheduling never worked out. And uh, the requests over the last few years became more and more frequent. Um, so much so that I believe it was in last year's Christmas card, where <laughs> after all of his Christmas messages, there was a PS, we should record soon. Um, and little did he know that uh, right before COVID, I was actually planning on doing a show with him. I'd actually reached out to him and said, hey, we should do a show together. And I was kind of envisioning that now that I own my own place and have a daughter, that maybe like once a, a fortnight or once a month, we'd go to the movies and, and watch something and talk about it. But then COVID hit and we couldn't do it. Um, so it made absolute perfect sense that one of my first guests on this new show that I'm doing, uh, that he should, uh, he should appear. Uh, they say that almost everything in life can be tracked back to your parents, so I guess tonight we'll find out. Please welcome uh, to the studio my father, Graham Chalmers. Good evening. How are you? <laughs> that was magnificent, wasn't it? It was. Uh, uh, did you like the sultry tones? <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I did. It just. I, I, I just was going to say something, which is nothing unusual. Uh, Glenn Wheatley died. Yesterday. Okay. And probably don't know much about Glenn Wheatley. No, but that's not unusual for me because (coughs) as people will learn the more they listen to the show, I don't know much about anything outside of movies and even then it's questionable. This this goes back. Glenn Wheatley, I actually babysat his wife, not as a (laughs) wife, but as as a little girl. So they lived in Strathmore, um, uh, Gaynor and her sister um, and mum and dad in this house in Strathmore and I used to occasionally babysit. Um, and uh, she then had a boyfriend who drove a Ferrari and that was Glenn Wheatley. Um, and, and just a magnificent family. And But the thing about that is that I had met him earlier in a different disguise because he was also the bass guitarist of... Uh, Master's Apprentices, okay, which was uh, which was a, a really uh, psychedelic type of band, uh, yep. Jim Keats, uh, something Jim Keats, um, and some guys that I used to hang around with uh, all played in the band, not that band, another band, and they were the backup band for Master's Apprentices at the um, Reservoir Church Hall. Really big 
auditorium for about 150. Um, and one of the biggest thrills of that night was one of the guys in our group knocked off the brush of one of the band members because they all had long hair. And that was exciting. And so that was the first uh, acquaintance of, of Mr. Wheatley. And then um, through his wife, who used to play in um, a TV series called Skyways and other, okay. uh, other shows. Um, and then to hear on the news that he died of COVID-related illnesses at 74 and the man looked very healthy but also famous for being the man that put his house on the, on the line to produce um, John Farnham's You're the Voice. Yeah, I was just to do a quick Google search while you were talking because I knew I recognised the name. I thought it was John Farnham's yeah. manager or yeah. involved with that. Yeah, um, and Vanessa Amorossi, I think, as well. Yeah, and uh, Delta Goodrum. That's, uh, that's who it was, Delta Goodrum, not Vanessa Amorossi. So um, he, there was some, there's some sort of relationship, well, not so much relationship, but similarity between him and um, Michael Kadinsky, who are both in the same sort of areas. Mm-hmm. So, um, another loss of another very important person in our music history. And I just mentioned that in passing, um, mainly, <laughs> because I, mainly because I could say that I actually babysat his wife. Um, but, it sounds a bit weird, but then that's what happens when you get old. Um, but there, if you look in history, the age of 74, somehow you've got to go 73, 75, because a lot of people die at 74. <laughs> so I'm now trying to work out a way that I might be able to get onto one of, you know, Richard Branson's sky travel um, and just disappear for a year and come back <laughs> um, and uh, and hopefully not disappear and never come back because they made a mistake with the fuel. Um, we ran out and we just crashed. That would be terrible. But I, I got distracted, which is nothing unusual. That's okay. So, Look, there is a, uh, there's a little bit of structure to this show, but we do all our tangents and I imagine that once we get started um, proper, we will uh, go on a few tangents because... Uh, what we're going to do tonight is talk about some of your favourite movies, um, mm-hmm. which is what we do with all of our guests or most of our guests. And uh, But before that, we do like to talk about, I suppose, the uh, the humble origins in which they became uh, either very serious or casual film fans. So I guess I'm always – I let people know I was a teenage film snob, but uh, I guess I want to know if you were. And it's going to be interesting for us because, obviously, being, being your son, uh, our history with film is very much tied uh, to each other. Um, mm. And my probably, you know, I said at the start that um, you kind of blame everything. Like everything about us, we blame on our parents. And my fil- love of film is no exception because the two biggest memories of movies for me growing up were mum walking me down to the library when I was about five, six years old and you taking us to the video store every Friday night, um, which was a huge part of my life. And for those who are, <laughs> who are young enough to not remember or too young to not remember, the video store was a building you go before Netflix and you would uh, get VHS tapes. And I still have my VHS tapes. Um, so what was it What was it for you? I mean, we'll obviously get to the fascination with the video store as we progress, but what was your relationship with film like when you were a kid? Because I really don't know. Like I know, um, I know very little. So what was it like? Well, if we, if we go back in time... Melbourne was saturated 
with theatres, and those theatres would have been live or film theatres. So I remember in the city where they're now doing Moulin Rouge, there was a film there that was called The Magic Christian. The Magic Christian? With Ringo Starr. I might be wrong with a part of it. But... Um, it was a, a, a very interesting movie. Um, but so movies were a big part in the sense that they were a production. You know, it was theatre or the local theatre and you'd see back in, back in, uh, in our area in Essendon, Essendon uh, where you would have done uh, uh, something to do with school, some sort of event, um, there was a little uh, theatre there. The, I think it was called the Royal. And... You used to go there on a Saturday and you'd watch a, 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 a cowboy or a Western-type movie um, and throw Jeffers down the aisle um, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. So that's where, where it came from. So, you know, we might have got dropped off by mum or dad and then we'd sit there in the movie. Um, and that's where it all began. It, it was a, a big production. But like everything, um, I heard this discussion on, another person, whereas when we went into the city, we wore a suit. Mm, yeah, we were, okay. We were dressed up. You know, you wouldn't be wearing your bikini in the city like you do now or try and find a bit of cotton big enough to cover you. But the, the reality is that it was a dressed-up occasion. Um, and going back to my grandparents, uh, the, the male would usually wear a hat. Um, and it was uh, so very, very formal uh and if you so in all that uh particularly i wrote something on my facebook page uh uh, fairly broad comments as i usually do but i was talking about um growing up and um at school i used to get beaten up a lot at school either by the teachers or by the kids because i was the shortest one and they could beat me up so it was good fun and i hated school um, because and, and I was lucky because one of the English teachers who was a Christian uh, used to give me the cut snorly every day um, and I blessed him for that, um, thanking him very much for the religious experience that my hands felt on the occasion that were absolutely stinging. But, see, I've got a smile on my face. I'm not allowed to kill someone. So, um, but having said that, guys, I'm not going to go and kill him but he was living around this area where we're at the moment. Um, so um, there's a transition where we went from the suits to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and at school you couldn't have your hair above your, uh, below your collar. Mm, yes, I've heard this. <laughs> and, and so we would do assembly, and, um, and one of the best things about growing up at that time was um, – is the Ferris Bueller movie connection is that you just had to abuse the system to stamp your authority on who you were as a person. Sure. Uh, And Ferris Bueller is a typical movie where you see these characters. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and, But I won't go any further with that. Um, (laughs) But but the reality is that... um, so you went from having basically no hair and then you start to get long hair 
Um, and now I've gone the reverse and got no hair. But um, during that time, um, the whole society changed. And and so and so did the way we, we saw things. And, and even then, we might have had VHS, um, but, you know, we were going through things like cassette players in the car. Um, yeah. And, um, and they used to be big cassettes. Like you, the thing was about... About that big, you slid it in, and and that, and then you got the little cassettes, you know, which would invariably get caught in the machine, and half the tape stuck in the machine, and there's another one gone, you've got, um, and you're thinking, oh, well, it was a rubbish one anyway. But um, so a lot of things during that time, you know, um, people of my age uh, challenge things. Uh, a little bit older than me because we had the Vietnam War and that sort of stuff, which goes on to another movie which I like but I'm not going to tell you, um, is uh, we we saw things in a different way because we grew up with things changing very quickly. And I remember when there was a bombing um, overseas and we were, we were living at that stage down in Kiel opposite the pub and we were watching this happening on TV instantaneously. Mm. Yeah, you know, when you talk about that, and that's going back, you know, probably 30 years ago, James, you know, maybe maybe yeah, about 30 years ago because we are living in next to where Dottie was. Um, and um, it may be a bit older, but uh, yeah, younger. But um, so our communication changed. And so mm. things like... VCRs and all that sort of stuff in videos. So the traditional thing of seeing, I remember my dad and mum going to the movies at a drive-in, um, which would be unusual because then dad had to walk to the aerodrome from, from where the drive <laughs> was, which is about 700 kilometres, um, and, um, and it was a longer smile, which was really that uh, prison scene where all the, the inmates were against uh, the guards. Yep. And it was called The Longest Mile, but it actually had a different name originally. And so things became different. You know, all the movies that previously uh, were fairly calm and, well, not calm, I mean, you know, um, but they were you know, in a structured environment. Then you had the, you know, you had uh, drive-ins um, and then, um I remember taking mum and dad to the pictures one one week, uh, one time, and I went and saw Ryan's daughter. Now, you won't have even heard of it. You know, no, I've, I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. So I'm sitting there with mum and dad, and then there was a pair of breasts that came on the screen, <laughs> which wouldn't leave the screen. And all I wanted them to do, and mum's sitting there, and dad's sitting there, and you've never seen breasts on, on a movie ever. So all of those things, normally a 32B and now a 700C in cinematography, <laughs> the hugest things you've ever seen. You wouldn't let them on the beach. But anyway. It's, it's so funny. You, you touched on a couple of things. Um, the first one being drive-ins, which is still which yeah. is still around. You know, there's still a couple oh, left. Absolutely. In, in, and Australia, Australia had a drive-in boom, like especially in the like late 70s, early 80s. That's when we really yeah. – um, and that kind of whole – I don't mean to cut you off, sorry. Um, that whole kind of Australian 
underground cinema really exploded. You know, that's when you had those exploitation films or the Ozploitation films, as they call them. Um, and we really start to make our, our map on the globe. The other thing, of course, um, which is is true to this day, is whenever a teenager watches a movie, there's absolutely no nudity in it at all until mum and dad walk past and then you can't escape it, um, which I think everyone's experienced. Um, so I just thought that was funny. <laughs> and that's another thing about that movie, about those kids um, in a movie where everything that can happen does happen almost. The... And, and and at the same time, there's Australia was had an avalanche of movies like Alvin Purple and, you know, um, the uh, now respected actress um, uh, who was married to Darren Hinch, um, her name will come to me. And she was in that, um, in an American movie, while she plays a grandmother and this sort of stuff. Why can't I remember? Is it Jackie Weaver? Jackie Weaver. She's been a well, bunch. She was in, um, especially yeah. like the last few years, she's done some really respectable things like yeah. Animal Kingdom. And I mean, that's a, that's a 15 year old. She was also in some respected movies back in the 80s. And yeah. The 70s, she got her boobs out more times than, you know. I was waiting for it. The amount of times yeah. I've heard you, you go rant about <laughs> Jackie Weaver. I was waiting for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, we won't go any further there. But, um, but there was just a whole series and, and um, you know, puberty blues and all these things, you know, the, the, the surf culture, which goes, you know, takes movies to a different degree because every year you'd go down to, down the beach by the surf um, and um, my mates and I, we'd hang out down near Anglesey or, or Lawn um, and anywhere in between where you could go surfing. I was a pretty good surfer. Um, but once I stood up, I was pretty ordinary. Um, but but I lay on the board a lot because when I'm in a wetsuit, I look like a dolphin. Um, the, um, Me too. Or Danny DeVito was the penguin. That's what I look like in a wetsuit. So. Um, but there'd always be a surf movie at the local hall, you know, the dawning of the, of the earth or something. And um, so the latest uh, surf movie would be on. And everyone would come out of their their, uh, their tents to come in and see it. You know, they've got their zinc cream on their nose because you had to do that when you go to the theatre at night um, so everyone can see where you are because you've got the bright pink or orange on. Um, and, and, and so a culture a culture of, of movies was there um, and because it, that was a time when you as young people would go uh, and, and see movies that you wanted to see uh, which your family never would have seen. Um, and, and so, you know, I was born at a time where the universe changed so much in such a short period of time. Um, and, you know, I was listening to someone speak the other day and it's a bit like our music uh, in the fact that um, a lot of people are dying now um, and it happens Um it's one of those things, you know. I was I was watching something that today where someone was dragging a coffin across the beach, and I'm going, "Now that's that's interesting. Um, that's a little bit like um, John Cleese, uh, but they did that on a on a raft." The um, <laughs> the the thing that's um, is that um, you were. I think people were very challenged by the opportunity of having all this, all these forms of media, 
um, in whatever shape you wanted to do that never existed before and everyone was challenged by it and needed to do it. All we've done since the 70s and the 80s is got better equipment. Mm. You know, the people who were the... Uh, who were inspired were in, uh, are still inspired because they're still making movies, um, and some of them back you know uh, backyarders, and some of them are sort of trendy whatever. Um, but um, unlike the music, the music has a, a sort of sat in a corner. It hasn't actually gone into any great lengths. You know, if I see another video clip. With Taylor Swift, I will cut my own throat. You know, <laughs> the only thing the only thing that she's got is long legs, and she's a very attractive young lady, and probably a lot of people love her singing. Um, and I'm not going to go any further. But <laughs> you know, the um, then you you know, I mean, Joe, you, you when you start to see people um, from your era. And they don't quite look the same as what they did then. Um, and again, like you, you see Led Zeppelin when they, you know, they, they have, you know, a special honour and, and they've all got their chains around their neck and they're all wearing suits. And then you go back, no, that's not them. I remember mm. what they were really like. Um, and then you see, um, you go back and these are the same people who had such a big influence. You know, what they were doing back in those days um, was remarkable mm. um, and challenging and, and tested people. But anyway, I detract. I, music and film uh, are significantly related because the soundtrack or whatever music goes with the film can either be a disaster or it's a winner. Fantasia is a winner mm. because as you pointed out when you were singing the song, well, you didn't sing a song, you go da 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 I mean, look, even if you haven't seen the film and, you know, spoilers, I haven't, like, and I should have. I've got Disney Plus. There's no reason why I shouldn't have seen Fantasia by now. I just haven't got around yeah. to it. But everyone knows the dun da 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 Like, it's so iconic. Um, yeah. It's one of those ones where, like, and they remade, well, they kind of remade it a few years ago where they made this film called Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nicolas Cage. Yep. Um, yep. And it was basically just based on that segment of Fantasia, which was, you know, yeah. when you know, in, in the animated film, obviously he leaves Mickey alone and he puts on the hat and he casts a spell and then the brooms. Um, they kind of did that, but just a film based on that particular story from Fantasia. Um, yeah. And uh, I believe it was critically panned, um, although I didn't mind. I went straight with Tina, I thought it was fine. Um, I'll watch anything with Nicolas Cage because he's just so weird. So. Yeah. It's a bit like Johnny Depp, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, he'll never make a normal movie. Like, that, that, that's especially like, and we're going on a tangent now, but Nicolas Cage, I was talking to a friend about this a while ago because his favourite actor is Nicolas Cage. And for the last Can I just 10... ask you a question? Go for I'm it. Just, I'm distracted by your mattress on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Is that for you to bounce off because you had a bad day, or? Yeah, um, I am in my work in my office, my home office. But no, um, uh, for those who, who don't know, um, because we have a very young daughter, um, one of us gets to sleep in the bed each night between my wife and I. The other one sleeps in the office and keeps an ear out in case Zoe wakes up. So the mattress in here, is in here, and then we pop it down and we have a snooze. Oh, so I was a bit worried you're going to try and sleep like that. No, but Zoe will do that. She will run into the mattress and slide down it like she's a maniac. So. There you go. But I think um, there's a there's 
the the people who have the biggest impact on you are the people who are left side of reality. Yep. The creative person who um, that challenge your imagination and your thinking or whatever. Don't ever call me boring, um, even if I am. The thing <laughs> is that, um, you know, when we were, uh, you know, when I look at things that I've seen or done or whatever, I've never been boring. Um, and the thing is that you kind of gel when you, you see a movie with the people like Nicolas Cage or with Johnny Depp because they add, uh, they add an element um, because that's who they are. Mm. You know, John Belushi is is a similar person. I, I was thinking about him after you reminded about me, you know, um, and the thing is that when you have a person, I mean, regardless of any, any of the movies, but because of their connection with the Saturday Night Live and the, the group of people around him, they're all the same. Mm. You know, the creative people, he was the extreme of creativity um, because he didn't have to do much because he just used his eyes. You know, I, I always think of um, it's, it's funny with Belushi because my strongest connection to him is, is definitely Blues Brothers, and we'll definitely yeah. talk about that a little bit later. But um, what I think of him most, and especially those eyes, is Animal House, um, mm-hmm. which and is the latter. <laughs> yeah, he does the eyebrow raise and. Tunk, tunk. There's that or um, when he's in the cafeteria, he goes, what am I? A zit. Like, <laughs> I just hit the mic, so I apologise to the listeners for that one. Oh, no. And, and look at the other, with the, the, the Saturday Night Live, the bumblebee. <laughs> uh, he, he, he made something funny out of, out of nothing. Um, and you go back and watch the movie and you, and, and you see it again. He was just, you know one of those people who, you know, a short life, um, you know, 1914, the airline pilot. Oh, 1941? 1941, I mean. Yeah, Spiel- Spielberg yeah. film. Um, yeah. yeah. That was a little bit bizarre. I haven't seen it. Um, it's one of those no, ones. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I know. Well, we're, we're going to go through your list later, and you were telling me some of the movies on your list before, and um, yeah. I might have already said this, but I was shocked at how many I hadn't seen it was. And that's something that, you know, as people listen to this, they'll learn that I've seen a lot of films. I have a lot of movies. Like I'm posting on Instagram all the time what I'm, what I'm watching. But, you know, I, there's so many I haven't. Um, and a big part of that, I think, stems to childhood. And I was thinking about this the other day when I was getting ready for, for tonight's episode. Yeah. And so, like, even though I worked in a video store, even though I lived with, you know, you know with two different parents who were big film fans, there were some rules, you know. If there was a if there was a European sounding action star in it, and there was violence and cursing, I, chances are I wasn't going to say tell us in my twenties. Um, you know, if it was Schwarzenegger, Stallone, like none of those. I think the only Schwarzenegger film I saw while I lived under your roof was uh, Batman and Robin, or uh, or Jingle All the Way, and anything that people actually know Schwarzenegger for. for I hadn't seen. I didn't see Terminator until I was in my mid twenties, which is abysmal. I'm sure people are thinking, and like, how can he call himself a film snob? But don't worry. Well, I think the, you know, like I probably because of COVID, I've seen a lot of movies, um, and and some of them are remarkable. You know, like I sit there and I'm going, um, you know, I'll turn the telly on, 
and I'll set up Netflix and I'll put something on and then I'll fall asleep and wake up and I go back and try and catch up where I so I watched the movie 35 times to get to the end of it. Mm. Um, but there are some brilliant movies out there and the, you know, and there's a whole series of people um, that have got amazing skills, you know, and a lot of women um, who've got just that gift uh, of being just different enough to be able to go, and, you know, um, it, it makes it worthwhile. I don't, I, I'm not really too much into the romantic. I'm, oh, one I did, and I not, this is not in my list, but one that I absolutely love. And I'll tell you why, because movie, movies are going to have an effect on you. Sometimes because of growing up, a movie had an impact on you when you were growing up and it's lived with you and it's always part of your psyche. But I watched a movie probably a year or so ago called Love and Other Drugs. Yep. And it was not because of Anne Hathaway, but it's quite possible that it was. <laughs> well, she's, she's great. She's one of those actresses who's just very, very versatile. And it um, doesn't matter what she's in. She always brings it. And it's funny, you touched on before female directors. And that's why, um, and we're certainly not going to get too preachy on this show, but that's why diversity in, in the arts is so important because just that different yeah. point of view, like people are now, thanks to the show Squid Game, um, on Netflix, yeah. people are starting to embrace Korean film. They're like, oh, yeah. South Korea, I didn't even think about that. And Parasite, which came out a couple of years ago, yeah. people are like, oh, South Korea. Yeah. South Korea have been making wonderful films for the last 30 yeah. years and people yeah. are just discovering them now. But, like, if people like Squid Game, if they like Parasite, go back and see things like Old Boy. Go back and see things like uh, I Saw the Devil, like this and this. And, I, yeah. and there's the teenage snob coming out, like I'm um, um, getting patronising. But there's some really great international film out there. Um, Chloe Zhao, who directed The Eternals last year. She's done some yeah. really wonderful things in film as well. Um, uh, Drew Barrymore, you know, she directed Whip It, you yeah. know, going on over a decade ago. Um, it's just about all those different voices, you know, like gives, yeah. gives someone, you know, every white guy, every white guy who makes a film is probably doing a pretty good job, but there's always a different point of view out there. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so yeah. I absolutely agree. Um, so what was what do you think was the first film that really took hold of you then? What was the one where you're like, oh, this is like it might not be a favorite film, but what was the one that changed, you know, that, that kind of changed you from like, oh, I like this, I want to see more of this sort of thing? Is there one in particular you can think of? Look, you know, as you're growing up, there was things like uh, Easy Rider, uh, which once it, it was culturally where life was at. You know what mm, I mean? Of course, so yeah. So a lot of these, you know, you know, Peter uh, Peter Fonda, uh, and um, well, you speak, you think of eccentric actors, and Dennis Hopper has to spring to mind. So like, absolutely, there's and, nothing uh, he made that wasn't interesting, even if you don't like the film. Like, just like yeah. Nick Cage, that is an interesting guy. Well, that's it, and you sit there and you watch it, and um, so um, they're part of you know, that culture that when you were going through. Um, but it's still available and you can still see it. It's probably a bit dated because um, it probably wasn't, you know, the best movie in the world, but it was a movie of a time which was um, of importance at the time that it was made. It was because it was challenging society. You know, we're talking about the Vietnam War time. Mm. Um, and so one of the things about the Vietnam War, um, I was in... We had you got uh, your uh, balls were put into a big ball, 
and you, they picked out numbers to see if you were called up. Is this, um, is this kind of the draft? Is that? Yeah, the draft. Mm. So they didn't pick mine out, so they couldn't see me, so they missed <laughs> me altogether. But a mate of mine got got uh, had to go in, and um, and the tragic part of that, it was blind as a bat, um, and they passed him. And um, he said, if I take my glasses off, I'll be going into territory, enemy territory. Um, and that was how good the system was. Nothing's changed. The one thing that's consistent um, is that the things that we issues it then are issues still, mm. and it's about power and corruption at the end of it, um, and we'll talk more about that later. But um, so... When we talk about the Vietnam War, this didn't come out straight away, but it would have to be Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah. Um, because um, the when our soldiers came back from, from the war, they were booed at when they came in and walked through the streets of Melbourne because they went to fight a war that no one wanted to be in. You know, there were, you know, when they talk about all these people walking through the streets and all sorts of stuff, there were literally tens of thousands of people walking through the streets of Melbourne that you could walk through the streets of Melbourne without being interrupted by a tram or or a, or, or another road being decimated by the government or the local council. Um, and, and politicians were walking as well um, uh, because... You could either you either went or you would have to be a conscientious objector, mm. and that was found upon very badly because um, some people just didn't want to go to war, um, and it's different like World War One and World War Two, and the other wars in between. Um, this is a war of no real need. It was governments who had a you know had a political agenda. And yeah. all it will kill thousands upon thousands of Vietnamese people um, and left Australians um, in, in shock and horror who came back um, and you saw that young girl, you know, running through the streets of Vietnam naked because, you know, napalm had blown the clothes off her. It's the thing about it's the first that, thing I think, you know, and I mean, it'd be interesting to know people, like the kind of this generation, like the kids of today, but I think I think for most people, it's the first thing you think of when you think of, when someone says Vietnam War. Like, you know, even when I was kind of sixteen, seventeen, like we didn't really study the war too closely because um, it just wasn't taught where, where I was studying. But because I was doing media studies, like they showed us photographs, and that photograph was the only one that came up. And it's just such an again, like we use the word iconic, and unfortunately, this one's iconic for the wrong reasons. But yeah. um, it's the first thing you associate with that war. It's just, uh, mm. and you see the pain and. And the horror in her face. Um, and the Vietnam War, I think, has always been um, good subject. I mean, look, obviously it was a terrible war, but great subject matter for like, a lot of people have made films about that war because it's so easy um, to, I suppose, expose the villainy there like, and just show how, how crazy and ridiculous it was. Like, um, I, mean, I, I mean, there are a million movies. I don't need to go and list them all, but you know what I mean? Like. And the thing, um, because um, this movie was very close to what was happening in, in Vietnam at the time, and the Americans, when they do anything, they take over. Like, 
if they only needed to have the one police car, they'd have 10,000 police cars just to make a statement. And it's like, like you know, Vietnam. The um, it was all overkill. Um, not in you know in 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 just the political sense. Um, and some of that those shots in the in those different either the hotels or the or um, where they were blown up was symbolic of what was really happening. And I think um, the fight the the battle between uh, Robin Williams' character and the power of the government or the, or the, um, the um, uh, army mm-hmm. and the, the, the propaganda that was going out from all sides just showed you um, the frustration. You know, real people were dying mm. And you, you get these things. What what when I was looking at movie selection, there is one thing that becomes a predominant feature of the the, the choices that I think about. And and it wasn't done deliberately; it's just the way it evolved itself. But Good Morning Vietnam is always going to be one that will always hit me because I was around at the time. Mm. And I know I made it my I worked in the city at the time. Um and this guy's son had came back and his son his son was useless. Totally useless. Mm. And not in a cruel way, because um what he had seen, yeah, uh, he was not able to cope with. Yeah. Uh, I think he ended up committing suicide. This guy was a wonderful man, um, but he couldn't handle his son yeah. because he would go on to such a point. The people that make these decisions should never actually have uh, any close relationship between the people who uh, are affected by it, not always, but mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the decisions of others, for whatever reason, has an in- in enormous power. And whilst, you know, I get pretty twisted about people who don't have the same respect for Anzac, you know, Anzac Day, um, and um, understanding that people gave up their lives to to give us something special, and, and we just see it um, brutalised um, for and not respected for what it was done. We don't have to respect war, but what we need to do is respect the people who gave up their lives for it. I know when Dad came back from war, um, uh, he was um, spent. He was in the air force. Um, and he had um, he uh, got malaria while he was away, and he would often get, get sick, uh, even uh, after all those years. Mm. Um, and that was the effect of war. Um, and those things, I know your grandfather. Um, you know, he can tell you stories. But he couldn't tell you stories about you know being on a border between. One one country and another country, and seeing you know a, a grenade blow up uh, not that far away from you. Mm. Um, you don't have to experience war to experience the pain of it. Um, but like the, you know, Good Morning Vietnam, um, you, you you're in the middle of two sides of a story: the Vietnamese people and the children, and our own countries and their involvement. And the other thing about this, once again, is the music. 
Yeah. And the music at that time, you know, people like the Sapphires, um, that, you know, the Aboriginal group that went over there uh, and played to to the soldiers. Um, and um, the music at that time was a music that um, was unbelievable. Uh, so once again, when you when you start to piece together the changes in in, in in movies and in music, it all has a bearing back to something that's sold uh, and empathy mm. um, and tragedy and all sorts of stuff. And so that movie to me, um, I just love Robin Williams' total disrespect for any official <laughs> uh, trying to get him to do something um, and his passion that the little Vietnamese woman that he was teaching English to. Um, there are some really poignant parts in that movie and uh, I often watch it just to reflect um, on on life sometimes because we can often forget. But um, it's movies tell a story to you that are important to you at some stage. As I said, you know, you're talking about my very first movie, um, you know, well, obviously Fantasia. Um, well, that's that was, a, there you go. I don't know if you heard that, but Zoom just told us it's 9 o'clock, so that was a good update. Uh, this is our first time recording with Zoom, so hopefully that doesn't come into the recording. If it does, there uh, we go. Didn't come up here. Oh, didn't it? So just letting me know. Uh, well... I just uh, I just broke down. There we go. Um, let's jump into your list. I think this is a good time to get stuck into it. Now, we did ask for five, but I do believe you got a couple more, so that's totally fine. Um, we'll just go through some of them. So, well, you mentioned Fantasia. We can start there if you like. Well, well Fantasia is um, – it was the first um, – one thing about Disney, cartoons were amazing. Mm. The, the quality of the animation – was brilliant, and to know that these were hand drawn, um, just you know, for all the things that happen in the world now, you go back and see the you know the graphics that were hand drawn by these people and the technique uh, and the quality. I mean, you see stuff, you know, as you know, some companies doing some uh, Disney cartoons, and they're rubbish. You know, the quality is appalling. But back then, where real people were doing real work and doing amazing, mm. absolutely amazing craft, and, um, and and the colour and the vibrance, but it was that, that combination. You know, you you had the um, the pointed hat and the gown, you mm. know. Uh, of the person in charge of what was going on, a little bit Harry Potterish, um, <laughs> and um, but that was the thing. You saw something that was a, a cartoon, but the visual impact was amazing because you had the water splashing like mm. it was real water, and all those things were of a quality which you rarely see um, these days. You certainly don't see it hand done. You couldn't afford to. There are a few. The a lot. There haven't been very many hand drawn ones in a long time. The the most recent ones I can think of were there was a Disney one called Princess and the Frog about ten years ago that was hand drawn. It wasn't um, uh, digital animation, 
And then recently, going back in 2018, there was a, a film called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So it was an animated Spider-Man film, and it was computer-generated, except for one character. There was one character called Spider-Ham, and he's from a universe where he's a pig who dresses up as Spider-Man, and he was all hand-drawn. And they, well, they took yeah. the, the, the drawings and superimposed them on the digital one, but it is very yeah. rare. I think it's the reason why, because a lot of people um, talk about modern cartoons, um, and the popular thing is that people like to bash The Simpsons. They're like, oh, it's not as good as it was 20 years ago. Well, first of all, these ones aren't made for you. The ones from 20 years ago were made for you when you were a kid. Like, these new ones aren't made for you. But for me, the, the thing that I really notice is when I watch The Simpsons, the thing that really um, attracts me to those older episodes is the fact that they were hand-drawn. Like, you can yeah. see the imperfections. You can see the smudges. You can see the trace yeah. lines because... Um, you know, they weren't. It's not like a Disney film where there's quite a bit of money. They were made for what they were made for, and you can see that they were made by humans. Whereas these digital ones, it's very clean, it's very computer. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I like. You know, it's the same when you hear like you were talking about music before. You listen to those old, those old records before um, they did digital recording. You would hear the mistakes if you look at movies um, or like movies from that time. Um, or even like it's not so much anymore, but even like in the nineties, before they went to digital film, you'd see the grain of the film, you'd see the, the scratches on the film. Yep. If you went to yep. a, if you went to a movie theater and the film was like in its last weeks, been playing for about a month or two, the quality was far less. It was far worse than it was the first time you saw it. Um, wrong. And that's you know, and that's obviously a big part of it is nostalgia, but I it gives it character. Um, and you're talking about you know Fantasia, which I've already said I haven't seen. But what I think of when I think of that era of filmmaking for Disney is Sleeping Beauty, um, mm. which isn't, you know, isn't the most masculine choice of movies. Um, but there's that gorgeous shot at the end of the film um, where Maleficent, you know, the evil stepmom, whatever, turns into the dragon and she's as big as the castle and she's raining green fire down. And, and it's that's just... where the word dragon comes from. Oh, is it really? We... No. <laughs> no, no, I should have said I was a teenage gullible idiot. Um, uh, the um the art style is gorgeous and you know is that hand drawn animation. But also it leans leans something I'm sure you're gonna to touch on, which is hasn't really changed for Disney. It's always been a thing of Disney, but definitely that those times is the films were scary. Mm. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like kids' films these days, you might have a little bit of, you know, a little bit to scare children because it's it's important lesson to learn. But it's those, yeah, for those fifties and sixties ones in particular, like you know, like up until well, up until let's be honest, the two thousands really, like until until you know, things got a little bit more sanitized. Like those Disney films in particular were, were scary. Like they had they dealt with subject matter like death. Like it's it's pretty full on. And Fantasia, yeah. I know, is uh, a uh, renowned for you know scaring many a child because it is so weird i think the thing is the closest thing to fantasia would be um let me think i've got to think this um tubular bells what was it called what was the movie the exorcist the exorcist because the Exorcist was quite violent. Mm. Uh, the Send Up one was quite good. But the <laughs> uh, oh, what's it called? Repossessed? Um, yeah. With Linda Blair from The Exorcist? Yeah. Um, yeah. The Exorcist um, as a movie 
uh, was scary. I remember mm. when I watched it when it first came out, I, was, I stayed with the ha- in the house with the lights on. Mm. It, it still works. You know, I watched that movie yeah. not, not last year but the year before um, after Zoe was born. There was this kind of long period of time where we were rotating sleep shifts. So I would sleep till three in the morning so I'd just watch movies. And I rewatched The Exorcist one those nights. She was asleep next to me. Like Zoe's asleep in the crib and I put The Exorcist on um, just so people know what kind of father I truly am. Um, mm-hmm. And there's that shot and um, in the dark and then like the face comes out and it's the paint mm-hmm. and the pointed teeth. And, like, by today's standards, it's nothing, but it still is so effective. And then, obviously, there's the spider walk. Um, there's um, the peace hoop. Um, you know. And, and, um, and it, it's one of those things, you know, you um, it, it, just just the impact um, that it can have. So from the from not so much the violence point of view, just the visual impact of what they created was exactly like Fantasia. Mm. You know, it was all in the mind that God's working on um, and Fantasia still going to get, it was still scary. Mm. That's like The Exorcist, uh, just a different era. And, and so when you're the, looking at movies, so The Exorcist had a huge impact on me um, from the point of view that it was probably one of the most scariest movies I've ever watched. And I'm not into scary movies. I because I grew up uh, with a lot of scary people, and so <laughs> I, I didn't need to see a movie. I didn't need to see a movie to prove it. Um, one movie which I actually um, rewatched today, which is very unusual for me, uh, not to rewatch a movie, but because um, the impact of this movie. Um, uh, is a little bit about what some movies are like. You know, you empathise with what what's going on because this is um was based on a true story, and it's called Brew Baker, and this is a prison uh, run by corrupt officials mm-hmm. and corrupt businesses, um, and nothing's much changed. Um, and and what you've got is a prison system that is exploiting the the prisoners to make money uh, and deprive them of living in conditions that were suitable while making money selling food that they had for the prisoners to supermarkets. Mm. So they were, you know, they were making money. So from, from the government officials who were aware of it, for the board of people in charge of the prison, the prison officers and businesses in the local area uh, who were benefiting from getting equipment paid for by the prison to do prison work and given to other businesses to save the money. This is based on a true story. Mm. So when you're thinking about this, uh, a lot of prisoners would have been people of colour Um and as this goes, um, Robert Redford, who plays the warden, um, after they put him into the prison system as a, a person who is a prisoner, uh, so people, someone's got him in there, 
They want to see what's going on. And then eventually he's taken and he's starting to run the prison. Every door that he goes to, there are either government officials blocking him or um, people who are in prison who've got duties of authority blocking him. And even the person who's trying to get him to get the changes done is not corrupt, but she's not going the extra bit to make it happen. Mm. So he's he's battling all this, and in the meantime, he's he's actually found a person in the system who's been in jail for longer than his sentence. Yeah, but they just left him there because they forgot about him. That sounds a now, little bit. And uh, we were talking about we were talking about this before the show, but this sounds a little bit Shawshanky. Um, exactly. Where um, you have the character, actually, and it's the same, you know, Morgan Freeman's in both these films. I haven't seen Brubaker, yeah. but I did, did a bit of research before we started. And Morgan <laughs> Freeman's in both, and, you know, he plays Red in Shawshank, who keeps getting denied parole again and again. Um, yeah. And, Sorry, didn't and, mean to interrupt. You know, <laughs> no, that's okay. Because I, I was going to talk about Shawshank, and I thought, you know what? Um, everyone knows, well, most all the people know about Shawshank. But this one, um, even when he was uncovering things, they kept on bringing it back to him. They tried to get rid of him. In fact, he left hmm. eventually. Um, but what was happening, the guy that, the guy that uh, was in jail for longer than he should have been was actually the guy that made the coffins for the people that the officials murdered. Oh, wow. So, so the officials were murdering people and then they buried them in a field and he knew, he knew they were there somewhere because this guy had told them, but they actually murdered the, the, the coffin maker um, because they didn't want him to tell them what was going on. So the best way to do it is they put him up into one of those hand-charged electric charges and killed him. Mm. Um, and um, so Brubaker then goes into the fields and he gets all these guys to dig up the fields and eventually they uncover all these coffins um, and uh, they wanted to deny they said they were old coffins and whatever, but there was bodies that were broken, they were beaten to death um, and and eventually, you know, the the system didn't, didn't change um, and, and he, he left. But as he was leaving, all the prisoners were applauding him for what he had done because what he had done, he stopped it. He stopped what was going on, but he couldn't do any more there because the people in the system, they had to get rid of them all. There was, he, he just didn't want to be part of it because the people were as corrupt, even this woman who got him in there. But when you see this is a true story um, or based on a true story, um, nothing's changed in the world. Mm. You know, wherever there is power, there's corruption, and it doesn't matter um, how that goes. But when innocent people die because of it, that's when it's cruel. And you sit there, and I remember when I saw this movie for the first time, it affected me amazingly. Mm. I, I was really shattered by the, this thought, knowing that was a true story or based on a true story, and that people were, were murdered and put in there by officials. Now, I can get a little bit crazy from time to time, James. 
and and um, and sometimes I've just got to go off Facebook because if I look at anything on Facebook that comes from America, um, you just sit there and you get violently ill by the amount of people who are murdered by police and they don't do one day of jail. And and it's it's mostly it's people of colour. Um, and they don't have their information. They're not properly trained. They're, and then the government um, stands by them and they get off. And mm. you sit there, how does this happen? And the thing that really annoys me about that, which is exactly the way Brew Baker, is that you've got government and you've got politicians and you've got lawmakers approving murder of citizens by police by the mere fact that none of these police get charged with it. Mm. And and you sit back and you're thinking, America's learnt nothing. They've learnt nothing. Um, and it doesn't matter. But from my point of view, um, if people get shot in the street, um, there's a 14-year-old boy, an 8-year-old girl who got shot in the back five times. Um, Oh, it was a mistake. Well, she won't be coming back. Mm. You know, and there's no, you know, they go to they go to court. It was like the Australian who was shot by a policeman, the young lady who was uh, engaged to a man in America, and she came out in her pajamas because she thought she heard something. So the policeman shot her, and he's out now. He was only in there for about three weeks, and he got out. You know, and and so when when. When movies imitate reality, um, then the world's really in a bad place. Well, there's um, it's interesting you say this because there's one I'm thinking of right now that really affected me. And um, obviously, and, and you, you talk about people of color, and then the Black Lives Matter movement, obviously, in the last couple of years has really um, been a huge focus and has been achieving a lot of, of wonderful things, you know, to, to get their voices heard. And there's a movie that came back came out back in 2018 called Black Klansman. I don't know if you've seen this one. Um, a, a Spike Lee film, mm-hmm. based on the true story about a, uh, an African American cop who went undercover um, into the KKK, um, but he couldn't. Obviously, being a, you know an African American man, he couldn't blend in. So he teamed up with a Jewish man, um, a Jewish police officer. And I only talk about his religion because it's important to the story, uh, because obviously the KKK hate everyone. Um, and so this Jewish cop went undercover, um, but all the phone calls were done between this African-American cop and the, you know, the grand dragon of the Ku, Ku-, Ku- Klux Klan. And mm. then, um, you know, and then took him down, you know, which is really great movie. If you haven't seen it. It's, it's amazing. But the thing that affected me is at the end of the film, they show footage from the riots when, you know, the guy drove the car through and, you know, ran over the protests and stuff. And I've seen the movie twice. And like, it's a very entertaining movie. Like it's very funny to see, you know, dumb, hateful people get what they deserve. But that footage I'd never seen before, and mm-hmm. following the you know the power of that film, um, I can't help but like burst into tears. Like both times I've seen it, like as soon as that footage comes up, it mm-hmm. just destroys you because of what's going on over there at the moment, and has been going on over there forever. Um, but you know, all that if, aside, all that aside, like it is a wonderful movie. You should definitely see Black Klansman. It's really good. If if, if, if these were coming from China. Everyone would be going after China mm. for the behaviour of, you know, killing people in 
you know, and, you know, and it's a bit like um, it's just the fact that some countries will be highlighted by the things that they do and other countries it just doesn't matter. And in America it doesn't matter. Um, and black lives and black lives matter. Um, it was never about um, a bad form and it was about um, the, the instantaneous outlaw from people of all colour mm. about what happened. It wasn't that one person, it's all the people before it that created the, the thrust and you don't want to see violence in the street, you don't want to see buildings being burnt down or whatever, but the government, the country changed, you know, caused it mm. because they've never addressed it and they're still not addressing it. Yeah. Anyway, I so I sure hope your next movie is a fun one. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, look. No, I'm not. I'm just being silly. Like it's good. Like yeah. that's that's the beauty. Like it's it's funny. Like there have been times when I've I've sat back and I look at my collection or I think about what I've done. Like you know, am I? Is this a, a, a fruitless pursuit? Like, are there, is there more I could be doing? Like, what is it about film that, you know, I hold so, so dearly? Why is it, why movies? Like, because a lot of people are just like, I'm going to sit and watch TV all day. And A, I don't. Um, I work very hard. Uh, but B, it's, it's so much more than that. Like, we kind of, people often write it off as frivolous art, just like, oh, I was saying to disengage. And absolutely it can be. And we've talked about that. But um, it's just an, I don't there's no simple way for me to explain it. It's just, it's, it connects with me in a way that other things in this world haven't. Like film unlocks something inside me where I develop that emotional connection or I learn or I, you know, get a, an insight into the human condition that you don't get in everyday life. Um, so even though I did say it'd be nice if you had a fun one next, like <clears throat> I'm, I'm not discounting any of these films. Like um, the, the one that I, two movies stick out to me. Uh, one's a fun movie, but it's very sad, which is Mrs. Doubtfire. Mm. Uh, an amazing movie, and if anyone's gone through divorce or separation, this is not one <laughs> that you want to watch more than 20 times. Um, Definitely the first movie. time I saw it was after my own parents' divorce. That was the first time I watched <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> and uh, probably not yeah. the best choice, but anyway. it's um, I've seen it several times. The um, and what this movie to me is about is, and it happens in Australia, it's how the the legal system can destroy everything by some judge, and it happens in the family law court in Australia, where a judge will make a decision that affects the kids more than affects the parents. Mm. The kids are the recipient of pain and we've seen it time and time again where someone has made a decision to the father and then he's thrown his kids over the Westgate Bridge Mm. or driven into a pond with the kids so that the wife doesn't get to see the kids anymore. And and I didn't mean that to be, you know, for reflection, but if you see the, 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 the issues that Mrs Doubtfire has to contend with, because A, he didn't have a job, or B, he, he made a mistake or whatever. The human frailties of people um, become the issue or a smart lawyer um, who plays tricks with the judge um, 
there's always going to be protection for people, but they've got to have people that actually got some respect, and that doesn't happen in, 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 in that situation. The Family Law Court has always and always will, until they actually change it, uh, needs to, to change the philosophy about how they give kids the right to be where they need to be. It is definitely changing. Like, I know, like, <clears throat> that's one thing we'll say, and I love this movie as well. It's, it's really, it is a very funny movie, and obviously Robin Williams' genius is undeniable, and um, and the message at the end of the film, I think, is very poignant and beautiful. Um, mm. But I do think it does sit in that, um, it, it's, not, it's not outdated, but it is a product of its time. You know, I think now, just um, from my own experience as an adult and interacting with people, very much in in the nineties and earlier, it was like mum gets the kids. Like that's that's just what it was. Um, um, although you know, like our family was a bit of a mold breaker. There it was you know, a bit of pretty even split. A little bit more dad than mum, but it was relatively even split. And it seems to now the the interest of the children does seem to be changing. Um, I'm not mm. pretending that I understand anything about the legal system or divorce court, but just from what I've seen in my own everyday life. Um, but yeah, like that was a, it was very interesting that film that um, they did. If and you know I don't want to you know I'm I'm no historian and maybe there, there are other films before it, but it felt like the first time that it was like, hey, what about if you know dad wants custody? Like generally, in mm. the in movies, mum always wanted custody anyway, or dad was you know a drunk or violent or you know and that sort of thing, which as we know is great in film, but not always the case. Um, and also the roles can reverse as well. Um, but very, very interesting um, to see that. Yeah, to see that put on, on on screen. You know, like dad wants his kids. You know, um, they do actually. They do it a lot more. Like the other one I think of, um, which is a, a weird one to reference, is Ant Man. I don't know if you ever watched Ant Man with Paul Rudd, but he uh, he is an ex convict and he's just trying to like um, earn the. You know, he wants to see his daughter again, um, yeah. and ends up going on a heist and becoming a superhero and all sorts of things. Um, and his ex-wife's new boyfriend is the cop chasing him. Yeah. Um, but the way that story has progressed in the, in the sequel, and then there's a new one coming out soon, is that the family, the new family that is now not his family, so his ex-wife, his daughter, and his ex-wife's new boyfriend or husband are very embracing and supportive of him, where it's like, look, you might not be married to, to your wife anymore, but we still accept you for who you are and we want to support you where we can. It's very interesting. It's very, very uh, forward thinking and modern, um, which, you know, which I really enjoyed about that film. But anyway, sorry, yeah, I got distracted. <laughs> the other thing about uh, Mrs. Doubtfire was that if you took it a little bit out, out of the, its covering, uh, it was about a person who's able to recreate himself in the disguise of someone else. Uh, and see what he actually could do when he wasn't the person that everyone knew. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, the mere fact that he was sitting there drinking whiskeys with the, the producer of a, a show, um, I just loved it the way that he actually got stuck into the guy that was sitting on his ex-wife, you know, mm. in the restaurant. Um, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it about that. Uh, mm-hmm. It will ever be in my memory. Um, but on a lighter note, I said to you earlier, you know, we really are, you know, growing up and we, we bring on board um, not only our experiences, but we all, 
you know, our age bracket, you know, what do you do at this age? What are you doing? You know, what are your connections? And, you know, I told you about the band and and um, and uh, Master's Apprentices. Um, that's like a dream, you, you know, you have a bit of fun and all sorts of stuff. And then you go to Sunbury Rock concert and, and you know, and those bear boobs come out again. Everyone's walking around with bear boobs. I didn't have any, so I couldn't bear them. But... <laughs> That takes me to the movie with Matthew Broderick. Mm. One of the one of the classics on so many levels. And that was Ferris Bueller's Day Out. Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> there were so many things that in some instances, many people growing up at that era will have done something like that. Um during their school school years um, and, you know, trying not to go to school by being sick um, and fudging things, you know, writing your own prescription or writing your own, you know, dear teacher by writing and then signing it your own name. Um, <laughs> there were so many things. But that movie, um, those three characters uh, were, because of their, their individuality, they were key in, in the whole movie, no more than the red car. Mm. The red Cameron's, car. Cameron's dad's car, yeah. Cameron's dad's car, the one they're trying to reverse. Roll the miles back. <laughs> Roll the miles back. Um, but, you know, you, um, it's it was like all the people who used to help him to get out, out of trouble and everyone believed him, Bueller. He was just the most believable character. Mm. Um and they all loved him except his sister, and she was always getting in trouble. There's always one person she, in the family. She uh, was hooking up with Charlie Sheen in prison. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> there you go. And that was a bad choice that she'd got end up with Charlie Sheen. Woof. But that was one of those movies in a, at, at a time where it was really just having a poke of fun at everything about growing up. It really is. I um, it's It's so... It's so quotable. It's so memorable. Um, I always think, obviously, the uh, parade scene stands out where um, he, he jumps on the float and starts singing Dan Um uh, And obviously, uh, the the you know the the inflatable body underneath the pillow, underneath the blanket, and how to fake being sick. You lick your palms. One thing I always thought was weird, even as a kid, and I just didn't know like how to bring it, I didn't even know how to confront it. There's a moment very early on in the film when he goes to get Sloan out of school. Um, he's already spoken to Cameron and uh, he wants to get his girlfriend. He goes, he, he um, calls the school, pretends to be Sloan's father, and he stands at the front of the school in like the jacket and hat and then makes out with her. But they think that it's her dad. <laughs> it's so weird. It's such a weird yeah. choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They... It was, um, it's, it, I, I don't know whether it's even dated. You know, you, you could see parts, parts it's, are. It's interesting. We watched it a few years ago. Tina had never seen it before. Um, and I, I've learned over, the, over at the course of our relationship that Tina doesn't like John Hughes films. She thinks she does, but she doesn't, um, with the exception of maybe Home Alone. Um, but like um, Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, um, Ferris Bueller, all those ones she just has trouble with. And we watched Ferris Bueller, and I, and I love it. I think it's great as well. And I said to her after, I was like, what do you think? She's like, oh, I didn't like it. I just don't like him. 
And I was mm. trying to figure, and I was trying to figure out what it was, and I realized what it was. If you watch Ferris Bueller as a kid or as a teenager, you love Ferris Bueller. He's the ultimate rebel. He's the ultimate everyman. He's the guy who's going to pull the tricks on the adults and make it and make it work. If you watch it as an adult, if you watch it in your thirties, especially if you are a teacher, you're just like, I hate this kid. Like he's <laughs> just smart aleck. Like he's, you know, he's so annoying. He's like making things difficult for all the adults. He's very selfish. So I think it's one of those things where if you watch as a kid, he's, he's your hero for life. Like yeah. even now, like even when I think about him, like he he is great. But she, yeah. you know, she was in her late twenties, early thirties. She'd been teaching yeah. for a decade. And she was like, why do people like this kid? He's so rude and obnoxious. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like, when I think of that, um, I also think of the Millers. Where the Millers? Where the Millers with uh, Jennifer Aniston and the I can't think the Jason Sudeikis, the, the 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 man, like the dad, is that you talk about? No, the younger one. Oh, Will Poulter with the eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah, he's a fantastic yeah. actor. He's um, yeah, he, yeah, he's great. When he broke into the rap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so many parts about that movie, you know, you know, uh, often inappropriate, but um, but just very clever writing. It's a very um, underrated film, Where the Millers. Like it's one of those ones, and I think that, um, as you know, you know, back back when I was a kid, and certainly you know, in, in before I was, you know, before I was even born, like there weren't a lot of films out. Like, there were a lot of films, but it was like here's two movies, you know, in the theater for a couple of months. Whereas now, like there's movies, like there's six new movies every week, even during COVID, yeah. like. Yeah. Um, and that's just in theaters. And if you go online, it's like here are twenty new movies, and like you've never heard of them, you don't know the actors, and that's fine. But because of there's so many genres and subgenres, it just goes out and everyone's got an opinion now. So like the comedy is, you know, I, I'm I'm not surprised the comedy has survived this long. But you, you know, you look at the comedies of the eighties, you look at anything with Bill Murray or um or, or, or John Belushi, like they wouldn't be able to make those films these days, first of all. Um and maybe rightly so. Like I watched a few of those over the last two years and I was shocked at how much they got away with. Uh, particularly Animal House, like they get away with a lot of stuff in that. But also, it's just there's so much out there now. Like this, and this, that means there's so much more competition, um, and people are very easy to write off something. Like you know, like where the, like where the Mills is a perfect example of that where people just like, eh, like it's a cheesy comedy. It's just kind of fun. Like it's really fun, and like that's I think yeah. what a lot of people like. People think of these cl- classic comedies and hold them in high esteem, and like every comedy should be like this. But it's like no, no, no. Like it's cool. If it's not like that, um, yeah. it, you know, I don't mind that. Like, it doesn't have to, you know, be it doesn't have to be, you know, highly revered for the next ten years. It can just be a good time while you're at the movies. Um, another one I think of um, in that vein is Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but um, it's about two. It was based on a true story. Actually, two brothers, um, in a relatively wealthy family, who um, their sisters are getting married, and they need to get wedding dates, but they just. They always pick the worst girls who are like very like they because they're rich they're party animals and stuff so they put out an ad on Craigslist online saying we're looking for wedding dates we're looking for nice girls and these two girls rock up and they pretend to be nice but they're the worst girls you've ever met in your life and they almost ruin the wedding at like this island wedding it's really really funny but that's just another one of those films where people are like yeah it's fine like you know it's not yeah. it's not the Hangover well nothing's going to be the Hangover do you know what I mean like the Hangover is the Hangover <laughs> nothing's going to come yeah. close to that let it be its yeah. own thing. The um, and, and comedies 
you know, I mean, you talk about John Volusi and uh, and Animal House. I mean, um, there you go. You know, I'm not lying. I'm a fan. There it is. Where the Millers? Fan, I'm, yeah. I'm Blu-ray. <laughs> I mean, what was the girl's name? Oh, oh, the young, the young girl. That's Emma Roberts. That is Julia Roberts's niece. Is that right? Yeah. Very good. She's great. Good. She's um, yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan of Emma Roberts. She does. She makes some really yeah. interesting decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and she she had a good role in that movie. The um, it's, uh, Saturday Night Live had such a big impact on people in my vintage, and I know you like Saturday Night Live. Um, and that core group of people who were um, there was always, I think, you know, I've told you or shown you. There's a video clip of John Belushi going around a graveyard. And I, he's you can't, you can't forget it. He's the only one, like he's the only one that died, and he was going to all the grave sites of people who, who in his ideas had had died before him. Um, and that was that was spooky. Mm. Uh, well, I think most of them are still, most. Of them, I mean, Gilda obviously passed away, but most of them are still around. Like Chevy's still going. Uh, and I know people yeah. don't. I know people don't like Chevy Chase. Like, I know that he's one of those people who is famously not a like not a nice person to work with. But he's still good. Like I rewatch community. I rewatch Community all the time, and he's funny. Like, um, well, that's right. That's you forget about those recent events. You know, you know, you think. Community is one of those ones where he takes a good role in it, doesn't he? I think they were like, look, let's just write Chevy Chase. Look, I think yeah. that, like the character is very close to the person, but it just it just works. Um, you know, Aykroyd, I mean, I'm a bit disillusioned with Dan Aykroyd these days because all he tries to do is sell vodka. Um, I was listening to an interview with him recently. I had to turn it off. He was so obnoxious. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's that new Ghostbusters film. He's meant to be in it. I'll check it out. Like... Um, I, uh, yeah. When you you talk about, you know, there was you know we we're talking about the bumblebee and and the different things that John Belushi did, and and a lot of people probably wouldn't believe it, but every sketch that he did, or uh, any anything that he did, he did himself. He did did all, mm. uh, particularly I, I, I did cartwheels and backflips and all that, and he actually did them. You yeah, know, he wasn't. He wasn't built for speed. Um, <laughs> you know, he'd be a good battering ram. But you know, um, the Blues Brothers um, is one of those iconic movies where um, there's just so many different parts of it. You've got, you know, the 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 nun who keeps on slapping her over his knuckles yeah. because of his behaving and. You know they're trying to save the the orphanage, and she's trying to bring get him into you know to behave. But it, everything that it, it it's one of those situations. I mean, they get into all those amazing you know car chases, you know, in the park where there's uh, the rally going on. Um, mm. And and who was the guy that was a little. Uh, um, protester, um, I have a funny, funny feeling he was. Um, it'll come to me. He's a, he was in, um, this is here, I'd love this. He was the one that was in, and I can't remember. <laughs> um, but you know, you, you were talking about the you know, the last scene, but it, it, you know, when they were playing on, on, on the show and they were all running late, they couldn't get into the 
the theatre because it was blocked off by all the police. Mm. You know, they're the way through the tunnels in the car and, and they get on stage and they get the money and then they take it up to the to, to pay and all that. But there's always a, you know, a police chase. Well, yeah, and it held the record. I don't know. I think the record might have been beaten now, but for the longest time, for like 30 years almost, yeah. um, most cars destroyed in a, in a car chase in the oh, movie. That guy's name was Henry Gibson. Okay. Um, he was in, they used to have a, a, a TV show um, which was, uh, once again, I'm going to forget, uh, it was one of those things where people used to come out of a, a hole in, in, on a wall and make a comment, um, and Goldie Horn was in it and a few others. It'll come to me eventually. But, but yeah, the car chases were unbelievable, mm. you know, and um, and there was hardly a scene in the whole movie, and they always had what kind of car? Uh, Cadillac. Car? Cadillac, mm. you know, and when he came out of Juliet, there it is. Black well, boost. thank you, pal. My brother picks me up in a police car. You don't like it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I've seen that movie so many times, and I, I posted yeah. about it this morning. Like, it's the first film I remember watching, and I'm sure I watched movies before that. I'm sure I watched like a Disney cartoon or something. Yeah. But it's the one I remember watching the most. Um, yeah. All the time, like, it feels like religiously, and like we wore the tape out. You know, we wore the tape out because the opening credits you didn't see. Like that, you had to do the tracking on the VHS yeah. because you know they didn't have a crisp image. You had to do tracking to clear it, and we couldn't get the tracking to work through the overhead shots of Chicago. Like it wasn't yeah. until pretty much, um, you know, he arrived at the front gates of the prison out of Joliet that the video, video started working. We watched it so many times, and it was yeah. so heavily censored. I had no idea because in those days, you know, it is very different now. Like they censored everything on TV, so. First time I watched it, it as like a fifteen year old on DVD. I was like, "This film has swearing in it." I was like, "This film has well, nasty, isn't it?" It's that you when you when you see things, um, and if you go back to the the eighties once again, and, and in on on uh, TV, there was more nudity on TV in those days than you'll ever see now. Mm. What they what they could get away with at eight o'clock at night or eight thirty at night, you wouldn't see at the beach. And um, well, maybe you would. But the thing is that, um, and language, yeah, you wouldn't, you didn't know there was any language because it was all, you know, deleted mm. uh, until you get the video. And in any case, I'm watching it, go, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Yeah, I remember I watching. I was like, we used to watch these kids all the time. How did I not remember this? And it's because the VHS was so censored. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, but you know, that, the just had those scenes deleted. Like, you know, until, until I was 15, I had no idea that. We saw Elwood quit his job. You know, he's not yeah. wearing a suit and sunglasses. He's wearing like goggles and a white shirt, and he's got his hair up all over the place. Um, and you know, this was years before I'd seen Ghostbusters, so I didn't know what Dan Aykroyd looked like without the glasses. So in that whole film, you like, as far as I knew, you never saw his face. You only saw him in sunglasses. It wasn't until years later I saw that scene that had been put back in. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you know, like John Belushi was. Um, it was a tragic because um, the, the the movies he was in uh, always had an impact on you because mm. uh, he was very quick. Um, and as, as we've discussed, he's one of those guys that his eyes do all the talking. You know, you watch him and uh, he's making a statement. Um, 
and that truly is a it's a iconic uh, comedy culture. Mm. Uh, nothing quite like it ever since, and never likely. Even when they made you know um, the movie the um, Blues Brothers with um, what was his name? Oh, Blues Brothers two thousand with John Candy. Yeah. Oh, not John uh, Candy. Goodman. Goodman didn't mm. quite reach the anywhere near the heights of. I haven't watched it in years. I remember, like I watched it as a kid and remember loving it because it was Blues Brothers. And the last yeah. time I probably saw it was probably before my twenties, maybe the late, very early twenties. I'm really yeah. worried to watch it now because it's panned. It's critically panned on online. Like no one likes it. People think it's yeah. a cash grab. And like the music's great. Like that soundtrack is really good. Yeah. For yeah. obviously nothing touches the first one, but the second soundtrack's really good as well for the most part. But I just. Um, you know, there's zombies in it. There's a voodoo curse. Oh, yeah. There's, like, there's skeletons in the sky. I just don't know whether it's going to hold up the way it did when I was, you know, 10 years old. When you go back to the first one and you think about who was in it and how many musicians were in it, like world-class musicians mm. in this comedy, um, and they all, like, you know, I mean, uh, the soundtrack was basically, you know, the who's who's of of, um, of uh, Motown in, well, in so many ways. That's one thing they did really well with the sequel is they got the people who weren't meant, who didn't couldn't get to the first one into the second one. You got Eric Clapton, you've got yeah, BB King, you've got yeah. Paul Schaefer, you've got all these people. Um, so they did make up, you know, that part of it. It's just um, actually the second movie does have one of my favorite jokes out of all out of both movies. The second movie does have one of my favorite jokes. You wrote my watch. No, that's the first one. Although they do it in the second one in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> but in the second movie, there's a joke where um, the car breaks down. They're on their way to, to the battle of the bands, and the car breaks down, and um, uh, they're like, well, "What do we do now?" And Elwood goes, "We start walking," and no one wants to follow him, and he's walking yeah. off into the into the sunset by himself. And he turns around. Um, he gives this great speech. He's like listing all these like um, famous musicians, and he's like Little Walter, Big Walter, like just all these names. And then he goes, and Robert K. Weiss, and then Donald Duck Dunn goes, Who the hell is Robert K. Weiss? Robert K. Weiss produced the movie. Like he's in the credits. He's one of the guys. <laughs> in the movie. And I thought that was such a great joke, like because it's like he's not a he's not some blues legend. He's literally just like one of the guys who paid for the movie to get made. And like if you don't know it. It means nothing, but it's such a great little joke. It's one of my favourite ones in that movie, even though that movie's not very good. Correct. Another movie. Go for it. Billy Connolly. I know this movie. I know which movie you're going to talk about. And you're now, growing up, I was led to believe you weren't the world's biggest Billy Connolly fan. Is that true? And because I know he was very blue, and that's something that you didn't like. So were you not a fan of his at all, really, or...? Um, did you always kind of like him or has this film kind of turned you around on him? I probably, uh, I would make assumptions about certain things for for various reasons. I I wasn't really big on um, uh, blue language um, and uh, and he can't help himself. Um, and I, over the years I've heard, you know, heard him do other humour um, and... I think as he's got older, he's sort of mellowed as well. But this particular movie is a gem because it's sort of when you get older. This one, what we did in our holiday. 
Oh, we did on a high. Very good, James. Got it. And like the, is it David Tennant? David Tennant, uh, Rosamund Pike. Um, yeah. So those are the three main uh, adult leads. And then there's three children yeah. who I can't remember, but the three children in this film are brilliant. Yeah. yeah. The It starts on the premise of uh, a family breaking up or a husband and wife breaking up and they're going on a holiday to a dysfunctional family event which is chaotic in every sense of the world. And, uh, and and the grandfather decides he wants to go for a walk and, and takes the kids with him. And that becomes the story in essence because, um, and there's some beautiful things that, that come out of that, that part where he knows he's getting old and he knows he's not in good health. Um, and then he has this vision of, Sailing out on a on a raft and burning, um, and moving on to another life or the afterlife, um, and so when that actually happens, and then they go up and tell the parents, "This is what happened to Grandpa," it all starts to 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 cut loose. But- yeah, it's yeah. So just to just to clear it up for people listening, just in case, just in case you missed that, Billy Connolly plays a you know a grandfather who's. He has cancer and he's decided yeah. to stop treatment. He's like, I don't want to, he's like, I've got whatever time I've got left. I don't want to spend it throwing up. I just want to like live my yeah. life with, with my grandkids. And he tells his grandson who's obsessed with Vikings, um, give me a Viking funeral, you know, put me on a raft, burn me in, out, out of sea. And then in the film, and this is a huge spoiler, but it's also an eight-year-old movie. So if you haven't seen it, like get onto it. He yeah. passes away like while they're at the beach. And the, the funny thing is the first time, like they think he's dead and he's playing a trick on them. So they're like, oh, he's just messing around. And then he actually does die. And the kids are like, well, let's build a raft, let's light him on fire and send him out to sea. And that's that's the midway point in the film. Um, and then it does unravel. It's I never hear anyone talk about this film. This is a film that I bring to people. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I showed it to Tina last year, I think, um, or maybe the year before. Um, I showed it to mum. I might have given, I might have kind of steered you in this direction as well. I don't know. But it's just one of those movies that the first this time I saw, I was like, this is incredible. It's just oh. so... It's a little Scottish film. It's so well made. The the ending of that movie is so poignant and beautiful mm-hmm. where, you know, because um, there's this media circus, of course, where, like, you know, they find out these three kids burnt their grandfather alive. <laughs> and, the media, and, you know, at one point, like, David Tennant, who plays the dad, steps out to protect his children, be like, look, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. And even though he's going through this, you know, breakup and, you know, his, his wife's about to move away and take the kids and it's going to be like a three-hour bus ride or whatever um when she comes out in solidarity with him to protect like their children oh, like it just tears you apart it's so beautiful um it's a wonderful movie um yeah sorry i definitely took okay. over there, but i love yeah. the movie no, that's okay it's it, it is a wonderful movie and and i think you can't undersell that conversation that billy Connolly is having about the viking and what's important at that age of life. Mm. And, and unless you get to that age of life um, and, and the machinations of an older person, I don't know too many older people who don't have, as you get older, you, you know, you don't give a rat to that people too much anymore, you know. You don't have to put up with their nonsense. You don't need to be putting up with their approval. Get mm. lost. <laughs> get lost. You don't like me. I don't care. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> you know, I have 
I, I have not one ounce of passion about people who want to judge me for what I am mm. because what I am is real and, and, and what you see is what you get. But the thing is that in saying that, I'm noticing my mum that the barriers came down in her life as she got older and she was more accepting or more, you know, you could have a bit more of a laugh at, at, at things. Um, and most of the time when she'd been serious, I spent most of my life serious. Um, and I say to myself, are you serious? And I go, you got to be joking. But, and I think that I, I, I relate to this movie on the basis of he's come to the point where he's accepted who he is and what's going on and just enjoy. Mm. And, and that's the beauty. This, this movie is one that should be watched by the whole family. It's really good. And it's, it is. Again, we we're, were, were, were talking before about, um, about Disney films and how they deal with tough subject matter. I was shocked and, like, not outraged, but just I was so surprised that a film, a family movie um, made in Scotland in 2014 that no one really heard of decided to, like, hey, we're going to make a movie about a granddad who dies on the beach and his kids are stuck at the beach. You know, because that's the other thing. There's no other adults. They're isolated. They have to find a way to get home. And Stop what's going to – yeah, so they're going to deal with death. They're going to process the idea of death. And at the same time, they're going to burn him all, They're going to burn him <laughs> on a raft and send him out to sea. And it's just so crazy that they made yeah. it out. But it works. And it's – um yeah, it's one that I recommend again and again. Like I can't yeah. recommend enough. It's one of my favorite movies um, of, the, of yeah. that year and maybe of the decade as well. It's so good. Yeah. I think – yeah, I think the the um... – the characters, the people playing those parts, um, bring it to life. Yeah. And because, I mean, Billy Connolly's got a, there's a, there's a uniqueness about him. Um, he, he's, he lives in his own spirit. Mm. You know, he's an older man, long hair, hippie type attitude, you know, and, and that's beautiful. Mm. You know, he's not wearing a suit. He's not doing anything dumb. He just looks at life and appreciates what that is. Mm. Um, and he talks to the kids in a fun way. You know? Yeah, he doesn't talk down to them. He's just no. like, yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you. If there's a movie that should be watched, this is the one, hands down, that um, it, it's got that, you know the key key elements: family breakup, um, and all that's good about that. I had another one. I was going to talk about Gandhi, but it takes too long. And as I told you before, I've got to turn the heater on before I can talk about <laughs> that. But, but that's a great movie. Um, Soil and Green. Uh, that's a that's yeah. It's one of those movies that you need to need to have been there in a bit. Dark Knight was another movie. The, there is so many movies that... Um, that was one, and we won't talk about it because we'll, we'll, we'll wind it down. Because And look, you'll be on again, so you can talk anything we missed this time, we'll talk about it next time. But Dark Knight being on your list, um, I, I mean, it's funny because what, what we did in our holiday is newer than The Dark Knight, but it makes sense. Hearing The Dark Knight was on your list kind of surprised me. I was like, wow, like there's a Batman movie on Dad's list. Um, although now that I think about it, when I was a kid, I remember you renting Batman from the video store and I wasn't allowed to watch it. I was too young. And those 
first couple of Batman movies are very dark. And like to be fair, Dark Knight's very dark as well. But those yeah. those first ones are very creepy dark. Um, yeah. And I remember you renting. I was like, oh, I was like, my parents watch Batman. My parents watch Dracula. Like I remember seeing some videos that I wasn't allowed to watch because I'm like, oh, my parents like this stuff. That's cool. Um, yeah, well, I, you probably don't know, but I've actually seen the whole um, uh, Harry Potter series. No, I know this. I um, well, you would have seen most of them with me because up until yeah. up until I started dating Tina, because obviously for those who don't know, Tina's a huge Harry Potter fan, and she'll definitely talk yeah. about it on her. It was on her episode. Um, but um, up until we started dating, we saw them all the time. Um, and yeah. then I know, um, I think it was during COVID, Sarah said that you guys had rewatched them. So oh yeah, I because I forgot. You know, like I think uh, there's portions of my life just. To, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I either decided not to include them in my history uh, or whatever. But I think COVID certainly uh, opened up the doors. I've seen, you know, we've talked uh, at your house, um, some of the things, either series or stuff that I've watched. Um, and, uh, and I know Tony and I have a chat every now and then, you know, have you seen this or you've seen that? And um, there's, a, there's some great pommy dramas Mm. Uh, Broad Church, which is a, an amazing series, but they go on and on and on. And then, of course, I was I was taking Sarah to work this morning, and there was um, Sean, um, the guy, in the the uh, comedian in England who died recently. Oh, Sean Locke. Oh, yeah. Sean Locke. What and a he was loss. Reading, He's a, he he was was one. A, a genius. Yeah, genius. And he was reading out of his book. And Sarah was killing herself laughing because, you know, I mean, um, yeah, there's very few people that quick, yeah, <laughs> that clever to be able to do what he does. And, you know, it comes up on Facebook all the time and, you know, or TikTok, you know, I'll bring out an excerpt and, just, and that's it. He's just, it, it is a sad lock and a tragedy because um, there's no one quite like him. Yeah, and I, I never saw any. I've still never seen any of his stand up, but um, just yeah. the, the things he would say on those those panel shows, just yeah. some stuff he got away with as well. But just very, yeah. very funny, very sharp witted. Um, there's a whole group of people that come from that show that end up being on other shows, mm. and they're always good because half of the the group that's come from that are on this new show. Um, that's what I love yeah. about about British comedians and British panel shows. It's a very it's a very small but tight-knit group, so you generally get the yeah. same people. So you get to see that banter, and every now and then a newcomer will will show up. But generally, you know, we, we've talked about um, off-air off Taskmaster, which is one of my favourite shows, yeah. which yeah. you can watch on Binge now. Um, yeah. And it's the same thing. Like, you get to see that there's getting those comedians in a room and getting them to clash with yeah. each other, and oh, it's yeah. so good. Um, yeah. We're going to we'll wind and it down. Some of, women, some of the women in that group are hilarious. Oh yeah, absolutely hilarious, and it's just a pleasure to see people do what they do so well. Um, and you can just sit there and laugh. Good way to start the day if you want to yeah. have a good. If you want to have a good laugh, turn those guys on in the morning, and mm. um, good way to start the day. Yeah, it's so definitely, the, it's one definitely one thing that Australian TV is lacking, which is panel shows. Like, and we just we also yeah, don't, you know, I mean, look at the risk of alienating the entire audience. We don't have a lot of really we don't have a great sampling of comedians there's some very good Australian comedians but 
it's very hit and miss. I find <laughs> like there are quite, there are a few that I like, but there are a lot in there who don't really bring much to to my personal tastes. Um, but yeah, it's um it's that, a shame. That was the one thing I loved when I was over in the UK was those panel shows. Just watching like you just like for three hours like back to back to back like panel shows with all those great comedians. Yeah, we we've gone backwards in everything in, in Australia. Uh, we don't have any live TV anymore. We don't have any um, comedy shows anymore. You go back, you know, you know, fifteen twenty years, and you had Steve Vizard show. Mm. You know, you had uh, there was there was another one. I came from England. The nine o'clock, not the nine o'clock news, but there's a whole range of comedy shows. Mm. You've got nothing. You know, um, and it's almost like we'll just buy rubbish from overseas or we'll juice our own rubbish um, and that's all you're going to get because that's all we can do. And mm. and, and to, to the ABC and the B, I mean, to the BBC's credit and Channel 4, they've actually kept it going um, and uh, to, hang with, to hang with the expense. My last comment, Billy Connolly. <laughs> Uh, well, before we wind okay. down, we, we do end every episode with a rapid-fire question. So we've got five questions. Oh, okay. Five or six questions for you, so you don't have to think about them too much. Um, this one should be easy because I think we talked about it already. What was the last thing you watched? Oh, well, that would have been Brubaker today. Yeah, I thought so. And what's <laughs> been si- And we've all got one. What's been sitting on your watch list forever? What do you keep putting off watching? Well, that's a good question. Mm. Ooh. Um, I've seen. Uh, I'm getting better. I've been pretty ordinary in this area. Um, what's the last movie I watched? I can't remember. I have to come back to that one. That's okay. Um, are you a movie crier? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's where I get it from. Then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, is there an actor or actress that you'll follow to any movie? Doesn't matter what the movie is, you see, there's an actor and actress you'll follow everywhere. Well, you know, John Belushi would be that. Whatever John Belushi was in, I'd watch because that was just the nature of it, whether it was a movie or or, or, or whatever. Um, and you do, you know, if there's somebody where you're actually, I mean, if um, I'm now uh, the guy from Western Australia who uh, did that lovely song on The Pope. Not the Pope. Um, oh, Tim Minchin? Tim Minchin. Yeah. I'd go and see him uh, in a minute if he came back on stage. Mm. So, you know, there are people who I probably in the past may not have been um, encouraged to, but now um, over a period of time I've got into their sense of humour and it's the sense of humour I need. Nice one. Um, what was the worst movie you ever saw? Oh, well, it have to be an Australian one. It's interesting you say that. Oh, I like I've, I get in this conversation all the time. I'm not a huge fan of Australian movies. Like there, there are a few that I really do like, but I, I just think we could do better. <laughs> yeah, I, I look. I think you know you talked about um, um, Jackie Weaver. Um, She's actually got better than as she's got older. They've given her movies that she actually deserves mm. rather than drop, drop your boob out movies because that's all she ever did. Um, but um, 
I think that there's what well, what happens is it's a bit like the underbelly series. The underbelly series was great when it first came out. And the one with Matthew Newton was probably the best. It's really good. Yeah, he played an an enormous enormous character. Mm. It was good. it was really really good. But the first one was good because it was new. Yeah. Um, but I think Vince Colosimo unfortunately took the character role far too far. <laughs> um, and now he's in trouble. But then they started to to try and milk it, and and I think you know when they do that, it, uh, no, no more. Okay, that's it. <laughs> All right. Last question: What movie should they never remake? Well, that's an interesting question because some movies, um, they do remake them, and they're a disaster. Um, I've seen Gone with the Wind, and the only thing it gave me was wind. You know what I mean? It was. A, I don't know what they see in it. Do you know what? Am I am I missing the point? Did you have you seen Gone with the Wind? I haven't, and the reason I haven't seen it is the runtime. Um, yeah. three, three and a half to four hours. It's um. If there's if there are classics on on the list that I haven't seen, it's not because I don't want to watch more. The quality is about time. It's why yeah. you know, like I didn't watch Ben Hur for the long. Like ben Hur, I had to watch in four sittings because it was like four hours long. Um, yeah. So, um, so go with what I haven't seen. I do want to see it. Um, I just haven't got around to it at the moment. So it is definitely one well, on my well, list. Well, what do you never want to see again? Do I never want to see it remade? Yeah. I don't know. I um my my guidance in Ghost of Back to the Future. Like Back to the Future was one of those films to me which I think is just is perfect. Um there are very like there are very few perfect films for me, but the, the that one I don't need to see remade. I don't need to see Hot Fuzz remade. Like no one's remaking Hot Fuzz anyway, but that is a really underrated film. Um yeah. but yeah, like Back to the Future is the one that springs to mind because it just captured the moment so perfectly. Like it is quintessentially 80s. Like you're never going to get another Michael J. Fox. You're never going to get another Christopher Lloyd. And those are the two ingredients you need. Now, that being said, I'm open to seeing someone try it again. I just don't think, like, why would you bother? There is one movie that you don't want to remake. Sirens. <laughs> the Al McPherson film. <laughs> that's okay. That's the way it is. Well, <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to, to end the show. <laughs> Well, um, the thing about that is that how old is it? Uh, it's got to be late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. And what a cast. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who, who, was the, who was the pre? Uh, the, well, I've never seen Sirens, and like we talked about in the past, and I was like, because I'd never seen this. I thought it was about mermaids, to be honest. And you're like, no, it's not about mermaids. <laughs> um, let me have a look, Sirens. It's um. This is the part of the show where I look things up on my phone and people. Oh, it's 1994. Hugh Grant. Um, yep. uh, Sam, Sam Neill, El McPherson, Portia De Rossi, yeah. uh, yeah. Ben Mendelsohn, who's fantastic. Yeah. Um, look, it's a strong cast, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and it's and and that's one of those things that um, if you try to remake it, you'd be trying to remake it just to make money, and that not to, because it's. It's one of those stories which is, you know, um, a little bit Australiana, but you know, because you, you know, some alligator will jump out, you know, and there's the loo and go, that'd be the thing. Um, ah, it's Aussie, Aussie Steve. <laughs> ah, Steve, everybody, everybody. No, sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, I just, my little mate here has just been sitting there. 
Hi, James. He, um, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to shrink down into that size and they're going to make me do a cast and then you can throw me in the water. Um, <laughs> and he might have a half a dozen. Um, so there we are. Well, that was interesting. Certainly was. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Remember, I was a teenage movie snob, but I am trying to get better. We'll see you next week. <laughs>